so like this idea that God not only can mature from being this, I don't even know if that's the right word, but I've just been sitting with this and like struggling through it all week of, you know, at what point do you want to be self-sustaining and what does that say about you? Hmm. I, I hadn't considered the name in that way, so... Hello and welcome to Avenger Bros, your weekly podcast about biblical literacy, discipleship, historical and cultural context. I'm your co-host, George Benson. I'm your other co-host, Don Shiver. And uh, today we are continuing our ongoing series of walking through the Torah portions. And we are in the second portion of Exodus, which is Exodus 6, 2 through 935. Uh, and, uh, you know, so this past week, we actually saw quite a bit of interchange on our social media stuff about um, the Shemot episode and the naming of Moses. Don, you want to touch in a little bit of that? Because I know that you mainly were uh, kind of responding to the social media stuff. Well, there's some kind of uh, cool things. One of uh, the people that listened, Amy, she was talking about how she did some research on the goddess of the Nile and how some of that played out uh, and made some interesting connections. It, you know, it's just, it's, first of all, it's fun to just see that uh, some of the stuff that we're talking about is sparking curiosity in others and they're kind of doing their own research and uh throwing their own ideas out there and so that was a lot of fun uh and you know i i encourage you to go check out some of the comments on our facebook page uh to see where amy was going with it maybe even interact with amy a little bit and uh see where that kind of fleshes out but yeah it's been uh it's been cool to see people interested uh and taking it further yeah and that's uh, kind of what we're trying to um curate with this podcast is this, you know, community of people that are able to dive in and talk about the text and, you know, really help stretch and inform one another and hopefully bring new light to uh, something that's been a little stale or stagnant for you. Absolutely. So this week um, we see the, the renaming of, of God with Moses and the start of the plagues. So Don, was there anything that really kind of stuck out or where do you want to start with this? Well, I think for me in this section, the the piece that is throughout my life had been the most complicated. And I often hear a lot of people who, you know, either don't like uh, the Bible or have some struggles with God and particularly the, the Hebrew text. They, they often will point to this section of the text and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart um, as some of the ways in which, uh, they struggle with kind of the morality, even of God, that God would harden Pharaoh's heart in order to, uh, prevent Israel from being able to leave so that in some way God could enact all 10 plagues upon Egypt. And so I think that that's a, a place where, a lot of people go like this section, I think creates a conundrum for a lot of folks over the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. I don't know about your upbringing or what, or how you felt about this, but I just know a lot of people I've talked to over the years really struggle with this passage. No, I, I, absolutely. So a lot of, um, 
I, so when I was uh, in charge of a, a college ministry, um, this is a, something that we talked about quite a bit uh, because, you know, everybody was really starting to get into the, the Jewish roots of, of the text and, you know, being hardcore, being in a hardcore evangelical seeker sensitive church, when you start to introduce the more nuanced stuff, and this isn't the same for everyone like of those, I, I hope, but the one that I was at, when you start to introduce the more nuanced Pharaoh hardening God's heart, um, it does get really sticky really quick because yeah, it's, a, it's a sticky wicket. Yeah, exactly. Because people then, you know, jump to, well, that's just not how God works. And, you know, uh, God will never abandon you and all the platitudes of evangelical um, shorthand. Like it was, yeah, it, it, this is, this is a part that I've also not just struggled with personally um, at, at that time, but have seen a lot of people struggle through, which yeah. is really fascinating. Well, and part of what we, we can miss is that, you know, we think about this story. So Pharaoh and obviously not just this Pharaoh, but preceding Pharaohs have now enslaved Israel for 400 years at this moment. Right. And so we're talking like, you know, in, in history or in a Jewish mindset, uh, 40 years represents a generation. So for 10 generations, Israel has been enslaved in Egypt and the first moment that Israel comes on the radar of this Pharaoh as a potential threat, his response is to kill all the males. And when I think, I think when we, we look at this, we miss the fact that God decides to send 10 messages before finally, uh, you know, responding in somewhat of a similar fashion, but not even as similar fashion, right? Because Pharaoh's, uh, you know, order is to kill all the newborn males, whereas God, God's tenth plague is the death of the firstborn, uh, and that's it, just that. And I, I get not just that; that's a big deal. But we kind of miss that God has allowed Israel to be enslaved for four hundred years. God gives pharaoh nine tries to get it right uh and it's not until the 10th time and it's kind of this moment when it's like this is the last resort like god found every possible way uh to uh to get the people let go and then this is where then we're introduced with people going but god hardened pharaoh's heart so god didn't actually give pharaoh every chance so how have you dealt with that george um so initially it was one of those things where it was like, well, no, I mean, uh, <clears throat> oh, man. Okay. First of all, that is a really great question. How have I dealt with this? When I would walk people through it originally, it was terribly uneducated and just more platitudes of, well, you know, uh, Pharaoh was pagan. I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, just, just like the no compassion or um, no real understanding of what the hardening of the heart kind of represents. And so over time, that more developed is this idea of, um, and I can't remember where I've read it, and this may have even come out through conversations with you over the years, but just this hardening of Pharaoh's heart and how I've started to kind of 
ease into this idea of I don't know. Long story short, I'm not sure how I still feel about it, but the idea of the hardening of the heart is uh, God removing God's presence from Pharaoh. Sure. And yeah. so when you when I learned that, it kind of put everything in a different perspective for me. So um, the presence of God was still there with Pharaoh up through that point, and Pharaoh was still denying this request. Sure. Um, and I don't know, that kind of speaks volumes to me personally. Like if you're, if you are still within the presence of God and you're still denying this and then all, what happens when the presence of God is removed? Well, Pharaoh is still the same person that Pharaoh was. Hmm. Um, it's kind of like what it reminds me of is the, I think it's in the Talmud, the rabbi who goes around healing. I mean, I know we've talked about this before on the podcast uh, who prays to God as he goes from town to town, healing people with different illnesses. And then one day on the road, the rabbi heals somebody without asking God for permission. Right. And then God opens up the heavens and says, you no longer have a space in the age to come. So God's presence is removed from this rabbi, but now the rabbi is rejoiceful because he can, he can serve God without any type of reward. Mm. So the rabbi is still the same person that they were before that experience. Interesting, right? So, I know that's kind of, that's where I've landed at these days. Sure. So, what if I told you that, um, that the Hebrew word when it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart is a different Hebrew word than when it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart? Go on. So, when, whenever the text, I think there's one outlier uh, out of all of them, and it's just a, it's just a usage that's not used again. But there's two primary words used. That both of them we get, we translate to harden, and one is consistently used when God is doing it, and the other one's consistently used when Pharaoh is doing it. And the one when God is doing it, it actually means to strengthen. It doesn't mean to harden. Now, I can see where they would get hardened from because if you strengthen something, you might make it more hard. You might make it more solid. You, you know, that's how you might strengthen something. I think it's disappointing that our translators decided to translate these words exactly the same and not leave us any context in which to understand them differently. But if, if we're reading this passage and it says, and God says, but I will strengthen Pharaoh's heart in order that my works might be known. This is a very different reading. Um, uh, we were having a conversation. I was having a conversation with uh, Tiana, who I disciple, and she, she said that when she looked into this Hebrew word, it was funny because she's like, I didn't believe you at first, so I went and checked, and you're right. Um, and uh, and she said it also in some of the ways, some of the things she read about the word, it was it also means to repair, um, and can be used as uh, as a way of repairing. And so God repairs Pharaoh's heart, and so this begins to shift the way this reads. Then, if in different moments God is strengthening Pharaoh's heart, and then at later point. Pharaoh begins to harden his own heart, which in that sense, that Hebrew word means to make heavy. 
So, I mean, just hearing that, George, what, like, how do you, how does that begin to change the way that you would read this section uh, by hearing that, that God strengthened Pharaoh's heart? Man, I don't even know. Um, That's kind of a lot to deal with. And I don't do very well uh, going on the spot like that. But at the same time, it's like the thing that the initial thing that kind of comes is Pharaoh becomes more of who Pharaoh is. Mm. You know, when, not that I'm an expert in this, but when you work out, you strengthen what's already there. I have noodle arms, so I wouldn't. I, oh, you're, I'm, yeah, I'm overweight. Like, so, but when I used to work out, I, I was strengthening and developing new muscles, but I was building upon what's already there. So this idea of God strengthening Pharaoh's heart, well, I mean, he's still, or God is still doubling down or emboldening what's currently there. So then are you thinking, and I realize this is off the cuff, and so you you might reconsider this, uh, but so are you saying it's still God basically doing the same thing as hardening Pharaoh's heart because God's just positively reinforcing the negative morality that Pharaoh already has? Uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think that that's, I think that that's an easy thing to say. Um, I know I just said it. (laughs) No, but I, I think that getting this information, that's an easy thing to run with, but at the same time, um, when you strengthen something, you cut away what was not good. Mm. Yeah. It kind of makes me think of a a story I heard told one time Um, way back in the day. I went to hear Erwin McManus speak um, at a promise keepers event of all places. Oh, I want to hear more about that at some point. All I know is when I left the promise keepers event, here's a quick aside. I was like, the, the speakers would say something theologically profound and it was dead silent in this arena, but then they would say Jesus and there would be a cheer. And I'm like, I, that was the first, I mean, no, not the first, but that was one of the things that kind of sealed it for me that our pop culture Christianity just doesn't work because we're waiting for the right keyword to cheer instead of the right ideas. But anyhow, that's okay. All right. But uh, Irvin McManus used this, uh, was telling the story and it had nothing to do with Pharaoh or anything at this time, but I'm relating it. But he said he came home with his wife and when they pulled in the driveway, his son was standing out on the back roof uh, and was looking down at the yard and Irwin was like, what are you doing? And he's like, I don't know. And so he said, are you, were you going to jump? And he's like, maybe. And Irwin said, well, I'll tell you what, if you, he's like, are you going to jump at some point? And kid's like, yeah. And he's like, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you jump now? Um, and so that way, if you jump and you get hurt, at least I'm here and I can care for you. Um, and so in this picture, I would argue he strengthens his son. He gives him courage. He reinforces, he encourages him. He, he stands with him in order to be there for him in case. And so this isn't a negative. It's just, it's a positive moment in which he encourages or strengthens. And so if, if we view this idea of Pharaoh uh, being strengthened by God, it's not that God is strengthening the corruption of Pharaoh. 
but that God is giving Pharaoh the best opportunity to use his free will in the best possible way. Um, and so I would argue it's almost an increasing of free will, right? So think about like um, Lee, another woman I disciple, she was, we were talking about this and she made the comment that it reminded her of when uh, Lot gets taken by the kings and Abraham has to go and save him. And then the king of Sodom offers uh, Abraham a certain portion of the bounty of you know, rescue and the booty and all that stuff. And Abraham is like, no, I don't want any of it. You keep it because I don't want it ever to be able to be said that the kings of Sodom uh, you know, added to my riches, right? And you know, she related it to this idea of this strengthening that it could never be said that Pharaoh wasn't at his best when he faced God. And so that God, that to have Pharaoh strengthened, to strengthen the heart of Pharaoh was that Pharaoh was at his best on that day. And that this decision, this free will, he had the greatest opportunity to make the best and right decision. And so it could never be said, well, you caught Pharaoh on a bad day. And I think that's a really interesting perspective and understanding of that. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, I think that if you, um, if you taught that, what Lee's perspective on, on this was, that would, man, that is such a good perspective. Oh, I like that a lot. Because it changes not only the character of Pharaoh in this situation, but it also changes the the character of God, right? And like, that God didn't want to face Pharaoh at anything other than his best. Yeah, and that God wanted to give Pharaoh every opportunity to make the right and healthy decision. I love it. I love it. That's yeah. I mean. I think that when when you take that approach, uh, it not only puts more weight in Pharaoh's hand, but also it uh, it just I don't know it just really gives a different perspective on the character of God in this because you know you go from this evangelical idea of and I say evangelical because it's my background but this idea that you know God cut and cuts people off and that opens the door up dangerously to bad theology down the road, no matter what the text says to, I want to, when we see each other face to face or my representatives, I want you to be at your best. So I'm going to strengthen you to be that. Yeah. I mean, imagine if that was our approach in life, right? Yeah. That our goal was even in conflict that we wanted to strengthen the other. Um, is is powerful yeah because who wants to um have engage in a conversation with someone or debate when they're not at their best well i think a lot of us do because we like to win well absolutely i mean myself included but just like that idea of strengthening and emboldening um other people to be at their best when they come to the table is just powerful you know, I, you know, we don't often make sports analogies or relate to sports on this podcast, but I do think like so many times, you know, I'm a huge NBA fan. 
uh, and growing, being born in Cleveland and now living in Ohio. I'm a huge Cleveland Cavaliers fan and LeBron James fan. And, you know, I remember when uh, the Cavs were facing the Warriors one of the several times they did in the championship. And both teams really wanted the other team to be at full strength. So that way they could, uh, the championship would not have an asterisk next to it. It would be that our best beat their best. And it wasn't like, well, we were fortunate that so-and-so was hurt. Uh, but instead that we we sent out our best team, they sent out their best team, and it was a worthy uh, interaction. And I think that's such an interesting perspective on this section. I agree. Um, <clears throat> so uh, before we wrap up this part of the text, uh, is there anything else you want to say about it? Or, I mean... Um, I do love the showdown between uh, Aaron Moses and and Pharaoh every time, especially if you grew up, I think I touched on a little bit about this last week, uh, grew up watching the 10 commandments every Easter um, right. because just how terrible it, that version is um, yeah. because, you know, this is, I, I, so I were, I were always, I always enjoyed this part. And so that, that idea of, God strengthening Pharaoh to be the best is going to help me read this in a whole new light. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. I mean, I kind of want to tie a little bit in with uh, last week, we talked about the idea of Pharaoh's daughter noticing the injustice, right. Um, And, and that being passed on to Moses of him beginning to notice things. Um, And I think you brought up about the burning bush that, uh, you know, part of the tradition was that it was burning since the beginning of creation and that Moses notices it and this idea of noticing. And, you know, that's just really stuck in me this week, just in everything I'm going about my week and thinking about and, you know, what I see versus what I notice uh, and, you know, the the simplicity of seeing something versus the complexity of noticing it uh, and therefore doing something about it is so powerful. And, you know, there's a tradition that says that uh, God did the burning bush in this way in order to see if Moses would notice, right? Not just see it, but would notice the bush and notice that it wasn't being consumed by the fire. And so what kind of person is Moses? Is Moses someone who just sees or is Moses someone who notices? And, you know, it's one of those simple things, but man, it's just, it's been in me. I I can't, you know, I've just been thinking about it all week about how much of my life is just about seeing versus noticing. And so that's just really stuck with me. And then just kind of reading back through this section of the text and, you know, looking at the burning bush uh, scene and everything to, to kind of have that uh, brought back up again is just, I just think it's powerful. I think it's worthy of all of us uh, just pondering like how much of our life is spent seeing versus noticing. Hey everyone, George here. Really quick, I just want to interrupt the episode because I want to tell you something we are working on here at Avenger Bros, our newly launched Patreon account. 
Uh, right now, we are trying to branch out in a couple of different ways with the podcast, and in true Evander Bros fashion, we're still working on a few of the rewards, but we've got a couple that we really like. So, if you feel like supporting us more than you already do by listening every week, which we really appreciate, feel honored about, and love more than we can express, head on over to patreon.com slash Bros. Now, back to the episode. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I haven't really been uh, thinking about that part of the text, although full disclosure, I've been sick for the last, since we recorded last time. Um, but I have been, just the thing that I keep coming back to is the shift in names mm. of God in this. Um, and I said a little bit about this in the last episode where God shifts from being El Shaddai to Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of, um, so if you see in up through this point and through most of the uh, text, uh, God Almighty, that translates to El Shaddai. Right. Um, and so it's this idea of nurturing and um, will not be overcome to the shift of being self-sustaining. I'm, I am who I am. I will be. I'm the one who will create. Mm. And so like this, this new attribute of the God of the Israelites, like just, you know, in 400 years in the time that they've been enslaved, just have this huge character shift. So like this idea that God not only can mature, from being this, I don't even know if that's the right word, but I've just been sitting with this and like struggling through it all week of, you know, at what point do you want to be self-sustaining and what does that say about you? Hmm. I, I hadn't considered the name in that way. So, Oh, go, go on then. Oh, I, I, I want to hear more about your self-sustaining perspective. Well, I mean, it's just like, you know, so God's spirit had been in creation and then removed and then brought back in. And it stayed through, you know, post-flood narrative. So God's spirit is still in creation through this point. And um, so this providing that El Shaddai does for um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the most... uh, I don't know, I guess like unique ways. I mean, just look back on the interactions between um, Isaac and, and God, you know, God starts to really show God's self when Isaac decides to sojourn through the land. Um, mm. And so, you know, Jacob, uh, <coughs> pardon me, um, Jacob sojourns through the land to a point and then they settle in Egypt and you know, God is still present in that through the death of Jacob. And then they're there. They're in Egypt. Then they become slaves. And we, there's no like cause for considering that at least in the reading that I've done in the text, um, which is limited compared to others. But, um, there's no, there's no reason to think that God wouldn't have really interacted with them mm. at that point. And then they become enslaved. 
and then God shows up again, but is shifting from this, um, like he, like God no longer needs the Israelites in this image of self-sustaining. Like I, I would guess, but this is also, you know, my evangelical background coming out probably, but there's this covenant between them that God decides to honor and make good on. Hmm. And so, yeah, I don't know. I've just been like, that's, I've been sitting with that all week and just like, okay, well, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? And because I've been sick, I've been a little too preoccupied to sit down and read about it, but I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, I, you're, what you're presenting is, is a new idea to me. I haven't considered that. Um, for me, the shifting of, of the name there, you know, El Shaddai, as you mentioned, nurturing, you know, it's the many breasted one or mountains, which you can imagine how breasted and mountains work out to be the same thing in the Hebrew mind. And every time El Shaddai is used, it's during the promises of descendants and the descendants becoming like the stars in the sky. And so in this section uh, prior you know, Israel has now become as numerous as the, as the stars. And that's why Pharaoh is scared. Right. And so when Moses is at the burning bush and says, who should I say you are instead of God saying El Shaddai, um, that makes this story about descendants. Instead, God's response is I'm the same today that I was yesterday. Um, I think is to me comforting because it's in some way God is saying that, yes, when I spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had great wealth and they had freedom and they had the promise of descendants. You are uh, now those descendants and, but now you are enslaved and you are uh, oppressed, but I haven't changed the same God that made the promises of descendants, the same God that made promises of a promised land. You might have doubted that I was still around, but I have not changed. The promise remains that, uh, that you can rest in knowing that I haven't forgotten you, that, uh, I didn't say, well, job done. We have the descendants. I'm out, but that I'm this. I'm, I'm the same God, um, and so for me, when I read this section, I think if they've never heard the name Yahweh, how would that be the right answer? Right? Like, why didn't God say El Shaddai? Tell them El Shaddai sent you because that would be a name that they'd heard. Exactly. Um, but instead, God says, "Tell them it's Yahweh." And I think that in some way, for me, I read that and I go, I don't know about you, but in moments of destitution in my life, whether that be in severe depression or that just be in circumstances that seem to be going against me or my family, I often wonder where God is, right? And what have I done to offend God? And does God not care about me? Is God angry with me? Uh, and to get a message, that no, Don, uh, I'm the same God I was when things were going well. Uh, the same God that when you felt that 
things were going well and you blessed me. I'm the same God now as I was then. Uh, is that that pinprick of hope uh, that we see, that light in the darkness that we see? So, for me, that's more so how I've I've read that section. Um, was that God was encouraging them that nothing's changed. Plan is still on. We're still going forward. The promises I made to Abraham are still intact. I'm the same God today as I was then and I will be tomorrow. Um, so that's that's more so how I've read this section. Well, I guess the thing that, I mean, yeah, I, I've, I can definitely relate to those, those dark times and wondering what's been going on um, and, and who this God is that, you know, I've decided to try and follow. But uh, I, the thing that I've, I think that ties into this for me that I should have prefaced this with is I've been, so I've been researching the, the seven names of God and just like, you know, what are, what are the attributes? So here's God naming a new attribute that the Israelites may not have been familiar with. You know, sure. if, they're, if they're used to El Shaddai. So just like, who is this new introduction, this new characteristic, this, um, this new attribute of God? And what, what does that mean? Like, yes, I, I am who I am. I've been who I've been. I will be who I will be. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. It's been fun. It's been fun. Cool. Yeah. Um, well, uh, any, do you want to talk about the plagues at all or? You know, I think, I think first of all, I think what's in one of the things that is really helpful for us to imagine with Moses as we go forward in the story is God has set this up in a really interesting way, right? So we have the impression that Moses lived within Pharaoh's household until the age of 40, right? And then, uh, Everything goes down with the Israelite and the Egyptian. Really quick, um, can you uh, say why we have the impression of Moses living there until the age of 40? It's in the text somewhere. I'm not sure where. Okay. Um, And then Moses is uh, then shepherding for 40 years before he returns to call out the Israelites out of Egypt. And then he's in the wilderness for 40 years, right? And I think it's really important that uh, God prepares Moses in the household of Pharaoh to learn how to rule over a people. Then he prepares Moses in the art of shepherding and wandering nomadically as a shepherd in the wilderness and then is going to ask Moses to use both of those skills to then lead Israel um, out of Egypt. And I just think that that's such a, such a really beautiful picture. And, you know, I could imagine as Moses is sitting at the well uh, after he's escaped from Egypt, just wondering, like, what was that all about? What a waste of 40 years of my life. Uh, and now I've lost everything. And instead, God's like, no, you're just now beginning. And he goes from prince of Egypt to shepherd. And we know from the end of Genesis that Jacob tells, uh, tells everyone, uh, don't, or Joseph tells out all, the, all of Jacob's, <laughs> Jacob's family and his family, don't let them know that you're shepherds. It's the worst thing 
It's the most offensive gig to the Egyptians. So this kind of reminds me of when Jesus talks about the Good Samaritan, or not the Good Samaritan, the uh, prodigal son who goes off and has a job feeding pigs, which could not be imagined as more of a bottom feeding, no pun intended, job for a Jewish person than to feed pigs. Uh, there's no more bottom feeding job for an Egyptian, particularly Egyptian royalty, than to shepherd, uh, as we know from Joseph, who uh, told Jacob not to let anyone know that they're shepherds. So I just think it's really interesting. I, I think it's a, a really powerful picture. And again, you know, I feel like I'm going all applicational this week. Maybe I'm having too much introspection, but I just think about so many things in my life that I'm like, well, that was a waste of five years right? Or that was a waste of 40 years. Oh yeah. No, you hit the nail on the head with that one. After uh, I left the last church I was at, I was convinced I was done in ministry and just, I had wasted so much time and money and experience and, you know, life working on something that just chewed me up and spit me out multiple times. And, um, you know, my wife was the only voice of reason in that looking back on it. And it was just such this time of depression and introspection and like wondering what the hell I'm going to do next. Right. And you know, the next four and a half years I spent um, have just been like post that realizing that I'm getting back into this stuff, like how much good that experience was not just the stuff that I did when I was in ministry, but the stuff I did post when I thought that it was an absolute waste of time. Absolutely. Yep. It's man. I never connected that. That is, that's a, that's great. Yeah. I mean, he had to learn how to navigate the wilderness. He had to learn how to find uh, grazing uh, grounds for the animals. Um, and he also needed to know the ins and outs of government in some way, right? Uh, in order to govern the people well. And these are all things that he learned and God set up uh, for Moses to learn. Uh, and to me, it's it's just exceptional. So this is kind of off the cuff and I'm just spitballing. Um... But that makes it seem like most of this isn't off the cuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but I'm, you know, you just brought that up and I'm just thinking uh, Moses was a Levite and the Levites are the priestly class. And um, those are the people that really ran the temple, you know, you know, like post uh, exile establishing the nation of Israel. Like these are the people that were running everything or mm-hmm. at least should have. And so, you know, the authority that Moses had with the Israelites to begin with as somebody who was living in Pharaoh's house. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I don't know what that does, but that just kind of adds like this new, I don't know, it's just like another layer on top of that. Sure. For me. So the other piece that I'd add even to this then is that when God, and I, I think we might have touched on this briefly last week. And if it's a repeat, it's still worth repeating. Uh, I'm just showing my age that I can't remember who I had what conversation with. Um, That's why this, this idea that, uh, you know, in the, in the 
Talmud and in the Midrash, there's tradition that Moses had, and I think you mentioned a cleft palate or what have you, but there's there's a tradition that Moses actually had a pretty severe either deformity or uh, something that created a speech impediment that went beyond, like oftentimes I've heard it just referred to as a stutter, uh, but went beyond that and was a severe disability in some way um, and some kind of physical uh, handicap. And so this, first of all, I just think one, again, we just are so early in the text, we blow up preconceived notions of who God uh, God wasn't calling perfect as we would call perfect, right? Um, people. God wasn't calling uh, the people that are expected. But instead, here's someone that, unfortunately, the church wouldn't call, right? That uh, Christendom wouldn't call, that uh, unless we wanted it for a pat ourselves on the back moment. But God's calling an individual who understands themselves to have a, a disadvantage in communicating. And God's response to those objections from Moses is like, I, I created you. And in creating you, I created you. And I call you to do this. I'm not calling someone else to do this because I know that you can do it. And Moses clearly lacks confidence in that, uh, you know, God saying, you know, I haven't made a mistake in calling you. And when Moses still relents, God accommodates him, right? God doesn't make him feel guilty or shamed, but God provides accommodation in Aaron. And I just, I love this picture. And it speaks so much to the way the church and the faithful should be thinking about uh, those with disabilities in our midst and how we should uh, not see it as a something that holds people back from doing the things of God, but that uh, that they are just as likely, maybe even more likely to be called to do those things. And then in addition to that, that uh, they they aren't just called when there's accommodation, uh, but if there is a lack of confidence to do it, that we as the people of faith should find ways to provide accommodation so they feel comfortable and strengthened. And again, I would argue this is another example of God addressing the trauma of an individual, right? Uh, God's addressing Moses's own trauma about his own self-belief. So anyhow, I just find that picture to be really, really powerful. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'll never, I think last year was the first time that that perspective had been um, brought up and Sarah was teaching that week on ableism. And it was just this new perspective that I had not heard. And it is just, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, the accommodations God and the God would God makes for those. Uh, I don't want to say who lack, but maybe lack the confidence to do something or sure. Um, whatever that is and how much the mind. And I'm still learning the healthy language to be using in all of this. So forgive me if I misstepped in my language. Oh, same. Um, but you know how the, 
the ramp to get into the churches in the back. Right. Yep. It's just like, you know, we only want the the people who fit the mold coming in the front door and and sitting right. at the pulpit. Right. You know, I, I think it was during that teaching that Sarah made another comment. I know it came from Sarah. I don't know if it was in that teaching or not, but that was really profound to me was that she said uh, the true disability is the blindness of uh, the able-bodied people to see that people with disability deserve equal access. Um, and that's just so profound to me um, and true. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think that that's a good place to stop for this week. Excellent. Um, well, I have been... Well, before we do that, uh, first, if you have time, please stop by wherever you listen to your podcasts and give us a rate and review. Five stars is really helpful because it helps us reach a further audience. Um, and we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Evangel Bros. And if you have any questions or you want to dive more into the text, shoot us an email, uh, evangelbros at gmail.com. And uh, also, we have a Patreon now, which you probably heard the... Uh, little thing for in the middle of this episode but uh shoot on over um I'd like to thank our first sign up warren whom you've heard us mention before but uh there's a couple of tiers and so kind of becoming our sugar daddy yeah you know i'm fine with that we all need a sugar daddy yeah so thank you for that warren um and we're still working on a couple of the uh rewards for that uh so bear with us and we um, take suggestions on those rewards as well absolutely so what do you want to see what do you want to hear what do you want to experience? Either way, let us know. Uh, I have been your co-host, George. I've been your other co-host, Don. Have a great week, everyone. See ya.